Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's groundbreaking book, In This Together, landed on bookstore shelves with a powerful message. When we work together, we can do absolutely anything. Guidance from 40 women leaders with specific strategies to help women advance their careers makes In This Together even more relevant today, especially with the pandemic's impact on women in the workforce. Take your career to the next level with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's In This Together, now available on audiobook. Download your copy today. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go with a group. Folks, this podcast is brought to you by the Real Leaders Impact Collaborative, our once-a-month virtual impact CEO peer groups who meet to support each other with whatever is keeping them up at night. I joined the group back in September, and if I had to say the one major takeaway that I've received is that to not let things outside business affect your on-court performance. This little change has certainly reflected in our business growth and development. And when our members do well, more lives are transformed. That's what impact is all about. So if you're interested, please email us at info at real-leaders.com. Just say the podcast sent you and you want to speak to someone about the impact collaborative. Again, that's info at real hyphen leaders.com. Enjoy the show. All right, here we go. In five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today, folks, is the founder of Mackie, the Prosperity People, and Why Settle. Please welcome Miss Mackie. McNeil Mackey, thanks for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to, to talk about family business, uh, business for real leaders, and and very intentional businesses today. And, and this seems like you, you found your purpose early on. I mean, you're doing three, the trifecta, right? You've got uh, a financial advisory firm, you're helping people with investments, and you're also educating people uh, to achieve prosperity. Uh, where did you get your start and, and what uh, created this passion? Oh, thanks for that question. Uh, you know, I, this is a family business story that wasn't a family business. <laughs> That's how I got started. I my, had a family story that was about business. My dad was in World War II, came back home from World War II, went to school in the GI Bill to become a veterinarian, his lifelong dream. You know, that was his passion. That's what he always wanted to do. Practiced veterinary medicine for about three years. Uh, I was really, I think I just came into the picture about the time he was going bankrupt, basically out of business. But that was the family story, you know, that dad went to work for the government because he couldn't make it work in business, but he loved being a veterinarian. And as I, I was raised in a small town, I was fortunate to work with a lot of small business people over the years. And I always found that they were nervous Nellies around money. And I thought, what is it that people have passions, but they struggle with the money part of it. And, you know, obviously not everybody, but I saw that over and over with the business owners. They would be, you know, watching over their data, watching over their numbers. Maybe the accountant would come in, they might feel better or worse, but usually they weren't very calm when they were talking about their revenue and their costs and so forth. So as I went, decided what I wanted to do, I thought, you know, I think it could be different. I, I don't know what it is about business that, that I might contribute to, but I know if I want to contribute to businesses, which I do, I need to understand the language of business, which is accounting. So I studied accounting with no idea that I would become a CPA, but actually a professor said to me something like this, young lady, you go take that exam because this is a measure by which all your peers will judge you. <laughs> so I did. And then I became a CPA and then I'm like, well, I do what CPAs do, which I thought might have to do with helping people grow their businesses. But the truth is they really help people do tax work and compliance kind of things. And it's important work, but not proactive work. And I'm a person who is always looking to the future. Always, again, I wanted to solve this problem. I, wanted to, I saw that family businesses and my clients were having issues around making ends meet and cash flow. But I didn't actually have the solution. I mean, I'd studied a lot of these issues in college, but nobody had like, well, here's the, here's the playbook, right? Here's how you 
fix these problems in small businesses. So fortunately, I became a large CPA firm and some of my clients liked what I was doing. And so I said to them, you know, I think we can help you. Would you let me practice? <laughs> and fortunately, let me try new things. If they worked, we kept that iteration and built on it. If it didn't, we tried more new things. And eventually, an entire financial operating system began to appear, built on five sites, five different types of data that really give a business owner a clear picture of what they are doing. And we also moved away from being advisors, which I was taught to be in school, like you're supposed to be like the person with all the answers. Mm -hmm. I found that was really a terrible model. And we realized that the truth is people needed more coaches. They knew what they wanted to accomplish in their business. And we knew the, the language of business. We knew accounting and finance. So we needed to be their financial coach more than they needed someone to tell them what to do. We helped them discover what they need to do. And so over the years, this became our way of doing things. We call our system Prosper, and it is to help business owners achieve the three freedoms of prosperity. And, and so, Mackie, let's just, for people listening out there that are interested, like, oh, this makes a lot of sense. Um, where do you start with the small business owner? Uh, how do you approach them? What are the first things that you need to know in order to make sure you can do your job? Where we always start and we, is with their goals. You know, we are a person, we're focused again on the future. Where are they going and how are they going to get there? And for a while, I actually looked at strategic planning. It's a model that I needed to move to. But strategic planning is just the planning, right? And so we work with the strategic plan. We help clients develop strategic plans, but then we are there on the ground helping them implement them. So we basically took models from various sources, including strategic planning, and said, we're going to help them. We're going to use these tools to, to help a business owner achieve their dreams. Whether And generally, that has to do with making money. But I find almost always business owners have a deep passion that put them in business in the first place. And I love to uncover that passion, help them do more with it, help them elucidate that so they can be more uh, grounded. Sometimes it has to do with the fundamentals of how their business is formed or what they're doing. And sometimes it's it's like we have a business where we employ a lot of teenagers. And so we help them develop, you know, capacity to be young adults. You know, there are lots of ways to have a, a value-based business or a purpose-based business, but building that into the process of what we do is really important. So, so uncovering the underlying meaning uh, or purpose for the business understanding right. the goals that are going to make them achieve fulfillment. Um, what financial metrics uh, or tools do you like to work with? What, what do you think is most helpful for the small business owner who may not have the, the most, I guess, the, the best knowledge or understanding of uh, their lefts and rights? That's a good question. I, I work from the concept that there are five types of data, which is a little overwhelming when you think about it, but start with one that everybody's familiar with. I call that the been there data, right? That's what happened in the past, that you're counting. And then there's another real simple idea. That's the hope here data. What are, we, what are our hopes and dreams? That's our big vision. And beyond that, that's where most people sort of have. They have some been there data, some past data, and they have their vision. But everything in between gets lost. And the three things in between are, first was a plan here data. So we work with business owners every year to develop detailed concrete plans. These are not budgets. These are like, I am going to do this. I'm going to make this happen in my business. And hopefully we engage their team if they're open to it. We're very big on open book management. I think it makes a world of difference uh, ultimately in the business. So we've got, now we've got been there data, hope here data, and plan here data. And then the other thing is we'll start forecasting. So expect here data. Most businesses can forecast what they expect to have happen in 30 to 90 days. And when, when we start looking at our past data and then forecasting out about another quarter, now we can get a lot of comfort. You know, we get into that uh, freedom from worry. <laughs> so I can now see a little bit more into the future. So I know that thing, what's going to happen and I can course correct before I hit the wall, which is what we all want to do. Right. 
And the fifth kind of data is if I'm measuring all those things, if I'm measuring the right kinds of been there data, you know, I'm measuring uh, gross margin and return on labor dollar and on my cash flow appropriately. I've got those measures down. I've got my plan down. I know I'm where I am with plan. Then those numbers are going to tell you where it's not working. You know, I if I've planned to grow 20% and I'm growing at 10, then what is it that's missing? Well, if I plan to grow at 20 and I'm growing at 30, great, let's put the accelerator on. So I have the last one is let's analyze, let's dig deep into those areas where we either are having a um, success. So we can build on that success or where we're challenged, where we can fix the challenge before we look at our year end and go, well, that didn't turn out like I expect. I don't know how many times I've sat with a business owner that said, well, I had such hopes for this year, but they didn't turn out. That doesn't need to happen. We can actually monitor as we go, course correct, do some good coaching, get in there and, and make things different so that we can achieve our goals year in and year out. And where do you find the most pushback? from founders and CEOs? You know, it's interesting. That's a good question, Kevin, because one of the pushbacks is investing in their accounting. You know, I, I've worked with thousands of business owners. I've been in business for 40 years. I started in my 20s, uh, basically because I was unemployable, but that's another story. <laughs> uh, so, you know, what I find is that, and I got off track thinking about that. <laughs> um, you're going to have to help me. Where were we? Oh, oh it's okay. Um, yeah, I'm curious to know about what made you unemployable. But the pushback that you receive, if you're, when you're approaching, oh, the, you're talking about the plan. Yes, the pushback, pushback I received. Sorry about that. Are you good? Um, so the pushback I usually get has it comes from somewhere that as an accountant or as a CPA, as a personal financial specialist, it's hard for me to understand, but it is in actually investing in their data. I've worked with thousands of companies. I've looked at thousands of sets of books. And I can tell you that nine out of 10 small companies have a set of books that you cannot rely on. When I talked about the five types of data, been there data is the first type. We have to know where we've been. We have to have good data. And usually it's not, they're not big things that are wrong. There's just a little bit of expertise that they don't have in house that we, if we bring that together and we help them massage that data, set up a little better systems, we can actually now know this is exactly what happened last month. So now we're not sitting, otherwise I find we're sitting around saying, well, I know we didn't have a really good month or that number's wrong. So we always talk about what numbers are wrong in the financials. It's like, that is such a waste of time. And yet if, I, if we don't approach it correctly, that's our first pushback is, I don't want to spend more money. In fact, we just had a client walk away. We give everyone 90 days. So we said, work with us for 90 days and see if you want to do, if you, if this works for you, if you like it. And they basically said, we don't want to invest more in our data. We, we just want to, don't want to spend more there. And, you know, we don't, we don't know usually when we're starting exactly how bad the data system is. His data system was pretty bad. Um, and so we, couldn't help them. You know, I can't, we can't make something. It's kind of like, if you're going to make a cake, you got to have flour, butter, and sugar. Right. So you got to have the basics to start with. And, and Mac, you work a lot with uh, family companies. You, you operate one and, you know, according to the, the U S Bureau of the census, about 90% of American businesses are family owned. What are some of the dilemmas that uh, family businesses run into uh, when you're auditing their financial statement? But, you know, I think the family businesses are, you know, very challenging because there's so many dynamics going. There's the family system, there's the business system. And then of course, there's the interaction of family and team and how family members who are working in the business feel if that they're judged either more harshly or more leniently compared to the rest of the team. So all those things are going on. And I would say most of the problems don't have as much to do with money as they do with communication. And sometimes that turns into money. Um, and one of the things I did on my path is I became a certified Enneagram teacher, which is a, a personality system, because I found that when I went into family businesses, the challenges were that we are so a typical challenge. You walk in and there are five brothers and every they all have different titles and they all do different things, but they all make the same, the same salary. So maybe they're all making $150,000 a year. 
But if this person went into the marketplace, they'd make 75. And if this person went to the marketplace, they'd make 250. But because they're brothers, they're all going to make the same. And so you're setting up the system from the very beginning because we don't want to talk about these uncomfortable issues. Mm. We don't know how to talk about them. We've not been trained how to talk about them of what's my value in the marketplace and how should I pay myself a market wage? So we just are going to pretend that it's all okay. And eventually, of course, resentment builds up and now you've got unspoken resentment and you've got money and it's all mixed in there together. And that is a recipe for disaster. And I've seen companies go out of business because they would not change this particular part of their model. In other words, we're going to pay owners, we're going to pay company family members based on their family status rather than their marketplace value. And the business can't afford that. And I've said, you're going to go out of business. And they said, I guess that's what's going to happen because I can't change anything here. So I think that to me is, the ability to walk into the fire with communication with family. And, and that makes a lot of sense, right? Because payroll and medical benefits are usually like your two highest line items, right? So when you look at, let's just take let's like a cost structure, right? And you're looking at payroll, wow, and, and I, I need to make some cuts here. So you're, you're recommending you look at the marketplace. Do you, do you also suggest um, maybe performance-based uh, compensation, such as, hey, look, you know, one brother is bringing in, you know, 4X their salary, and another one's bringing in 1X their salary. That doesn't really equate to a, a marketplace because they could go in the marketplace and be paid less. However, they're still uh, providing a return on the investment. Um, how do you, in a family dynamic like that, um, how do you approach a family gathering with people who are saying, hey, I bring in more, I'm a breadwinner, I should right. get more equity or more compensation. Right, well, I'm, I'm a very big advocate of pay based on the marketplace. So you can, um, you can actually very easily in today's environment, go into the market and understand the, basically write a job description, look at that job description, find out based on your size of company, based on their geographic marketplace, what would be the salary range for that position in your company. Mm -hmm. And I advocate that people use that kind of methodology to pay all of their employees, not just their family members. And because the most important thing when it comes to money, believe it or not, isn't how much, it's whether it's fair, especially in compensation. People will work for less if everybody's working for less. So if your compensation philosophy happens to be, we pay at the bottom of the market and then we have large bonuses at the end of the year for performance, great, Just, but everybody needs to be at that bottom level benchmark. Or if our market uh, pay philosophy is, we're gonna hire the best, we're gonna pay at 150% of the market, great, then everybody should be at 150% of the market for their job. And I find if you adopt that kind of a policy, family or no family, you really have very little pushback from people. People will stay engaged and you won't be experiencing what many companies are experiencing with the great resignation. You know, again, sure. when it comes to money of any kind, equity is important, fairness is important. And certainly when it comes to compensation, that has to be rule number one. In your experience, you know, what are some of the, the disputes that you've uh, come across between family members? Is there one in particular that stands out that you go, wow, this is an extreme example? Oh, there's, there's so many. What I would say my, my, my most disappointing one was my first one, of course. Mm. You know, I ran into this family um, that was just, they were in a declining marketplace. And, and this, you know, I've been in business 40 years, so I've seen a few of these cases where Papa's business looked like this. But, you know, now the business, that marketplace that he saturated is disappearing. And so the business has to be reinvented. That's one of the wonderful things about business. And it's one of the challenging things about business is we always have to be reinventing ourselves. And so the next generation comes in and they try to do the same game plan. And, you know, they, now you've, and often you've gone from one owner to now several owners. And we go back to this you know, idea that they, I saw up to a company that they were declining market. Their entire business model was being 
was slowly going away. In other words, they were going to have to reinvent themselves. They were, they had a vending service and it's, you know, it was broad-based and local and geographic and it was just their competition was eating them alive and they needed a new strategy. Um, but their strategy, they didn't have any money to invest in that strategy because their margins were so thin because everybody was basically from the family took home all the profits every year. So there was nothing to invest in the business. Mm. And as I tried to impress upon them that they this wasn't going to be a sustainable model, uh, they basically said, we're not going to change anything, Mackie. I left. And a few years later, they went out of business. And it's, it's heartbreaking, really heartbreaking. You know, and I've, I've seen other cases where, you know, businesses, and I'll give you my own example for my own, and this is a, it's a, has a good story ending. You know, my daughter came to work for me, actually she worked for me three different times, <laughs> but she worked for me in high school. She then left to get a real job. <laughs> she came back when she was in um, between uh, trying to decide what she wanted to do in college. And then after college, she came back again. And I said, you know, if you're going to be here, I really want you to think about staying. And she fell in love with the business in the meantime. But I was struggling with, as a, as a parent, how do I keep my arms, how do I look at her, not with rose colored glasses, but also not with harsh glasses and expecting too much of her. So what was really super helpful for me, and I, I think works often in family businesses, is I put together an outside board of advisors, and she and I reported to the board. And it took about 18 months, I think. But they, you know, the board, some of the time I would meet with the board on my own, and some of the time the two of us would meet with the board together. And they knew that one of my objectives was to understand whether Sarah Grace should be kind of the successor, or at least one of the successors that would ultimately own part or all of these companies when I wasn't going to own them uh, in the future. And they basically said to me after about 18 months, Maggie, what are you waiting for? She's great. She's going to, she's got it handled. And that was so important to me because one day I would go home and I would think, oh, you know, I just don't know if she can handle it. And the next day it's like, oh, I should leave her alone. And I was thinking, am I thinking about this as a mom or am I thinking about this as the boss? You know, it's really hard when you're this, that, that one person and you're the both of those, you know, roles. So I think having that outside voice was super helpful to me. And let's go a little bit deeper. What is the fear that you have? Is it not satisfying your daughter? Is it uh, ruining the relationship? What is the ultimate thing you're trying to avoid? Uh, certainly not ruining the relationship, but she and I have done a lot of work on how to communicate with integrity and how to talk through tough, tough issues. So I was less concerned about that. And she, I also work, as you might expect, as a, as a B Corp and a, a person who lives their values, I work from values. And so she knows from growing up, she, I mean, she and the business were born at the same time. I was pregnant when I started the business. Mm -hmm. So she knows that my philosophy is always the business comes first. You know, the business pays the bills. So if the business is having a hard time, that means if anybody's going to get a pay cut, it's probably going to be me. Mm -hmm. Or if things are going to get challenged, it's going to be going to be for me because I'm going to take care of the business because ultimately the business will, will prosper and it will take care of me. So that part of it, she knew coming in that if, if things, if, she, if things didn't work out well, that she was going to be on that line with me too. <laughs> you know, she was good. And, and she had, to, she had to put up with a little bit of, I think my harsher judgment about probably where her salary should be. That's why one of the reasons that we engaged an outside firm to say, what should we all be making? Cause I, I would make up what I thought everybody would, you know, should make. And, and then I realized that, you know, I didn't need to do that anymore. I could have someone outside and that brought a lot of integrity and it, it put a level playing field between the one for us, it's just mother daughter. So there's not multiple family members in the business beside the two of us, but all of our compensation, including hers and mine is based on these outside, um, this outside evaluation by an independent company of saying, this is what the marketplace is for your role. And at this time, that makes a lot of sense. And Mackie, one of the key words that stuck out to me that you had mentioned is like family members building up resent for um, 
someone above them, whether it's control, whether it's um, an, an integrity issue mm-hmm. uh, or something that happened. In your experience, how what have you found to be the best solution for overcoming resent in an internal conflict? Yeah, I, you know, resentment is uh, basically a com. What I look at it is a common. It's a um, a culmination of unspoken grievances and uh, an un- an unwillingness to be to speak and an unwillingness to be heard. And you know, I always say that I'm, and it's not, it's not easy, you know, to to let someone complain or to have someone complain. But it's a gift to let to to make yourself vulnerable enough, and so uh, I, this wasn't a lesson I knew in my twenties when I started, but it was a lesson I've learned over the years, both with family and not family. It's like, you know, if there's something that you need to tell me that you think is going to bother me in some way, you know, tell me anyway. I'm open. I'm opening. You know, we're in this partnership to go down this path together, whether you're my daughter or you're working on my team as a non-family member. And I'm help, I, I, my goal is for, you, for me to achieve my goals, but also for you to achieve your goals. And if your goals don't mean, mean that you're not here in two years, that's okay. We're still, we're, for the next two years, we're gonna be working together, but let's help each other both achieve our goals during this period of time that we are going to be together. And that includes that we have to talk about the hard things. And that's why I love the Enneagram that when I first started trying to give clients advice, I found that I would say white and they would say black and I would say up and they would think down and we would just be like, they would say, what should I do? And I said, well, this is what I see. And they go, well, I can't do that, Mac. You probably you don't possibly understand my business. And I'm like, what is this? What is going on? So I thought, I know a lot about money and finance, but I don't know enough about people. So I spent three years basically in this process of learning what makes us all tick. And that's what I love about what the Enneagram teaches. It tells us what's our internal processing? How can we understand how we are thinking, how we are feeling, how we are behaving? And that what are our automatic responses? And so I not only do I did I learn that, I teach it to my team and we train on it every year so that everybody talks about their Enneagram type. Everybody talks about these are my blind spots. This is okay. This is, you know, and I, I will say to somebody, you know that detail isn't your best subject, but so you have to be a little more vigilant in this area. And, or, you know, you're getting, you're getting caught up in your need to please. And these are not conversations that are, these are conversations that happen like a lot where we help each other say, you're falling down into your rat hole of behavior. That's not very helpful, you know, that, and you need to, to recognize that you're being an unconscious behavior at this moment. So I, I, that would be, that was, I think a super and critical turning point for me. That makes a lot of sense. I love your response to, oh, you know, maybe I don't understand enough about people. I'm going to start studying personality tests and see if I can understand if there's a deeper motive here. Because I think that's what happens. And, in, in, you know, personally speaking from family businesses, is like you know your uh, family members so well that you think that you know what their motive is. And so your whole lens for how you, uh, I guess when you're listening to those conversations is either a negative one or it's one that you think you already know the answer to in both sides. And so it's just like you guys are talking over each other and, and no one's getting to anything. So I, I think everything that you've said today um, is, is going to be incredibly helpful for anyone listening to this. Now, Mackie, I did have a question for you around the actual accounting uh, aspects of a company. After you've done the planning, and you say, hey, maybe we need to um, increase your gross margins. Uh, a couple of metrics that are kind of uh, hot topics nowadays, and I guess in the tech world and software worlds are, are CAC and LTV. So customer acquisition costs and lifetime value. What goes into a customer acquisition cost and, and how do you measure that? 
Well, um, I'm not a big fan of that measure, but... Okay, okay. tell me why. Um, well, I think it can be a customer acquisition cost. Anytime you take something that is essentially a fixed cost, most customer acquisition costs are things that we invest in that are fixed. Some of them are variable, but I think we have to be careful about how we work with fixed costs and how we work with variable costs. So when we take fixed costs, like, so I've got customer acquisition costs. I have a certain level of marketing I do every year, a certain level of sales activity I have every year. A certain, so that, that's generally a kind of, once I decide what I'm going to spend, it doesn't vary based on how many customers I get, right? It's just how much. When I start taking fixed costs and I put them into per unit cost, I can run some bad decisions. If I then decide, for example, how much my pricing is going to be from that, I, I think that's a recipe for disaster. And here's why. The marketplace tells you the market, what the, what, where your price has to be isn't necessarily the marketplace, but it informs you about the marketplace. Mm -hmm. So if you're average in the marketplace, you're going to have to be sort of at the average. And so your job is to add value and to minimize your customer acquisition costs. So having a knowing what your customer acquisition costs or what your marketing costs are as a percentage of your revenue, I think it's great. But when you start breaking it down to so much per unit, that's where I think you sometimes go awry. What we should be focused more on is how do we add value so that we can structure pricing in a way that's uh, appropriate to the value that we're bringing and i think we spend too little time talking about the value that we're contributing to our clients or customers and too much time talking about how much it costs to get them and then but in particular go back to my basic philosophy when you take fixed costs you divide them into variable units you generally get information that's not helpful okay interesting interesting so what is your approach then? Because uh, I, I remember, uh, I guess I recall you talking about, you know, a lot of business owners don't realize this, but, you know, margin is where you make profits and, and not really the revenue that you bring in. So maybe tap into that a little bit. Where do you start with business owners to increase their margin? Well, we have a process called Grow Four Ways. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is an genius process i say that because i created it no i'm just teasing <laughs> it, it was partly i got some of it from somebody else and then uh again people let me practice with them and one day i was working with a, a client on this and i'm like i got this extra little piece that's made it really juicy so but basically there are four ways to grow your business so um you can the first way is to sell more okay and that's the way we all think about growing our business and, but that's the hardest way to grow your business. And it's the most costly way to grow your business. The second way is to increase the average value of every trend of the, of the sale. So if I sell my average sale points, $3,000, can I push it to $3,500 by adding some value by upselling? What is, that's the old, uh, do you want fries with that kind of conversation? Right. Uh, the other thing is the third way is to increase the number of times you transact with each customer each year. So if on average, a customer transacts with you three times a year, can they transact with you four times a year or five times a year or something more than that? That those two methods are much less costly and much more profitable because there's very little marginal cost to either, either increasing the average value of the transaction or increasing the frequency with which someone buys. If you can push those two needles, your bottom line will grow dramatically. And I'll go back to margin in a minute. The fourth way is to increase the efficiency of every process in your business. And that's the least sexy way uh, and also sometimes the most dramatic way. So the fourth way uh, is, you know, you start, so what, the way we do it is we do a workshop and we put the management team together and we start asking them, how would you grow this business? And it's amazing. Usually the ideas are out there. They're out there in spades. Everybody's got sure. a few ideas, right? We add them all up. And then we start um, 
we put them on a matrix. What, what can we do? Like right now, we're, we, we don't really need to do any research. We don't need to plan anything. We don't need to market anything. And what do we, what do we, what, so we go that with basically how easy is it? And then how expensive is it to put together? We, we made, put that matrix together and then we have some A1 quadrants, what we call them, like the things that we can do tomorrow that don't cost anything. And that just falls to the bottom line. The first time I did this process, we came up with two things. This is a business about a, I think a $2 million revenue business that was making about uh, $200,000. And we came up with two ideas that put $160,000 on the bottom line because there's no marginal cost. So we just took their bottom line for 200 to 360. And these were ideas that were already there. They were already engaged with the team. We just facilitated bringing them out and prioritizing them. Mm. So we go back to where does gross margin fit in here? Mm. So if you look at, those of those four ways the first way you're going to often not often but people often sacrifice margin when they're selling uh but in the second and third way increasing average value increase the number frequency of transactions that margin the new margin whether whatever you if you don't even change the old margin which you originally sold for the first price but you make more money on the next margin you're increasing your overall margin but the reason I spend so much time when we're looking at a set of financial statements with business owners, everybody wants to talk about their top line. And I'm like, you know, that's just bragging rights. But what drives their bottom line is the smart is the idea of margin. So what's the difference between my sales and my cost of sales and that gross margin before overhead? If I can, if at the end of the day, math accounting is really simple. If I maximize my margin, my variable margin, which is a variable conversation, variable, you know, sales is variable, cost of goods sold is variable, gross margin is variable, and my overhead's fixed, and I manage, all I have to do with overhead is just manage it. I decide how much you're going to spend, that's how much I'm going to spend. Sure. Then every time I improve margin, my bottom line just goes chink, chink, <laughs> chink, chink. Right. Uh, it's really, it really is it's not magical, it's, but it's not where people are focused. You know, one of my five things I ask business owners to do is to change their focus, change your focus from your top line to gross margin and your bottom line. It, it makes a lot of sense. Now, Mackie, let's, let's go from that stage. We've done the planning stage. Now we've looked at the numbers. We have a plan. In your mm -hmm. experience, we're both fans of the, the book Traction. Uh, in your experience, who have been the most effective leaders to manage this growth because having a plan and executing it are two different things in your experience what have you seen what type of leadership what type of management uh, tracking methods have you seen um, that have resulted in uh, increased performance that's a great question kevin and i would say that i think the most important thing for any leader is to know themselves mm. you know most leaders uh, not all, but a lot of leaders are more visionary leaders. And they, um, I would say I could raise my hand there. And I, I'm always having new ideas and I'm always having new things I want to do and new things I want to try out. And uh, until, and Sarah Grace is, and if you follow EOS and our model, she's the integrator, right? So she's the person that looks at all my ideas and goes like, no, 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 no. <laughs> or yes, we'll do this one. And that's important because I used to just go to the team and I would say, hey, I think we should try this. And they were like, what? You know, I mean, let's face it. I deal with a lot of people that are accountants, financial planners, numbers people who like certainty. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to them every few days and going like, why don't we try this? And why don't we do this? And how about this? And they're like, oh, no, she's heading off on another tangent. So um, <laughs> it was much better when I told all my ideas to Sarah Grace and then she felt sorted and filtered them out. So I think that's, but that took me a while to realize that I was really freaking out my team, you know, because in my twenties, I didn't know myself very well. I just thought I was being normal, right? I thought everybody wanted to try new things and reinvent themselves and, you know, explore the future. And they're like, no, that's scary to miss most people. And and you're just going in and scaring your team all the time. So when I began to see that my best um, creative juices were to folk were spent in other ways than 
telling my team what they were, you know, expounding on them, then really things began to settle much better in my office. And I think that, so if you, if on the other hand, if you're a leader that is very much into the detail and very much into process and structure and which I'm a huge fan of structure, I am terrible at following it, but I believe in it and I like to create it for other people. <laughs> but if you, so if you're a real structure freak, but you're not a bit a big um, visionary freak, maybe you need somebody on your team who's more visionary than you. So I think understanding that people are different and respecting those differences and knowing myself and knowing what, how I need to complement my own talents is super important. I think that's great. And, and if, uh, you know, a company effectively manages and, and grows the company over time, Let's say uh, founders is getting getting up there. They're starting to see you know the beach and the white sand every day. Hey, maybe <laughs> I could be over there. Um, what is your advice on getting, or I guess what valuations or, or financial tools are you measuring to make sure that that business owner, that founder, uh, has is in a good financial health situation? Are you looking at networking capital? Uh, what specific um, items are you looking at to make sure that they can be in a good position uh, before they sell? Well, that's a great question because so few business owners spend time thinking about um, how they're going to monetize their business, when they're going to monetize their business, how it's going to work out for them. Mm. And talking about family business, the business owner can bankrupt the family because if I've seen this happen where the, the, the person who started the business Boston, you, you know, their business is going well. They build a new house. They, they up their lifestyle. If we make more money, we spend more money. And suddenly they decide they want to make a generational transfer, but they need, they haven't saved any money and they still need their salary mm -hmm. to pay all their bills. The company's not worth that cash flow, this, the, the future value of that cash flow. And so the business basically goes out of business because they can't afford to pay the, the owner off. So those can be very real concerns. But what I, I'm an advocate for every business owner to do a financial plan. And unfortunately, we have this thing in our society where we think, I need a financial plan when I have assets to manage. No, you need a financial plan, whether you have two nickels to rub together or whether you have, you know, several million dollars. A financial plan just tells you, here's where I am today. Here's where I want to go tomorrow. And here are my steps in between. And if you're a a business owner, it very clearly can tell you how much money the business needs to be worth for you to achieve your personal goals. So that's step one. Always for me, step one is I got to know as an individual how much I want to, to walk away. And then when I know that, I can decide, do I, do I have the um, luxury of selling internally? Maybe I'm going to take less if I sell internally. Do I need to sell to the highest bidder because in my, my internal team, my next generation can't afford to pay me what I need? Well, then maybe you're out, you're looking at an outside buyer. But that's the second step. The second step is we do a market valuation that says, this, these are the kinds of buyers that are out there for you. There's the upstream buyer. There's the lateral, the, you know, lateral buyer. There's the the next generation buyer. And so these different buyers probably have these different price points. So now we have the financial plan. This is the amount of money I need here. And we have the marketplace analysis. These are the kind of monies that these particular buyers are going to pay you. And we can look and see where we can come together. And if you, for example, if you really want to have a family business succession, but the family business currently can't pay you what you want, well, you know, your number one goal <laughs> is to improve the profits in your business which is probably very doable, but you may not have the skills or, or the tools to do it from where you are. But if you give me five years, you can put them in place. Right, got it. And, and so let's say, you know, business owner uh, has good financial health, uh, sells the organization. Um, ha have you had any experience in post-merger integration uh, where a company gets acquired by a bigger company? Uh, and have you I guess, what challenges come along with that? Well, there are certainly challenges uh, for sure. And we typically, if say our, if a company is acquired by the bigger company, we were the advisor for the small company, we're going to only see it from the periphery. We're not going to continue to be involved with the large company because they would have brought in their 
uh, own financial advisors to make their deal. And I don't tend to work for any acquirers. I tend to work for the people who are being acquired or, you know, again, transitioning in the family, uh, whichever their, whatever their choice and whatever their financial plan lets them do. But what I see is that, you know, they're, what I typically experience is that most acquirers will say, you can keep your culture, you can keep your systems the way they are, but that's usually, as we all know, that rarely happens. Usually every time the cultures have to ma match with the acquirer, which, so I think that if you really want to, so many people will say, I know I need to sell my business outside, but I want to want my team to be able to stay in place and I want the culture I've created to stay in place. So, you know, there, there may be a adjustment that you have to make for, I'm willing to take less to get the culture fit for my team, or, you know, I'm, I'm just going to get the best price and hope, and some people will end up staying and some people will end up leaving, but that's a, a conversation that every owner has to come to terms with if they're going to sell upstream. And let's face it, there's a lot of money out there and it's a lot of money chasing deals right now. So, if you've got a good business, if you take a few years to make it even better, it's really lucrative how much you can essentially get for your business in today's marketplace. And Mackie, when you're having conversations with business owners, uh, just have a stat here, about $70 trillion is going to be transferred to uh, future generations between 2018 to 2042. So when you're having conversations with these uh, boomer owners, let's say, who are about to um, you know, pass on wealth to the next generation or are considering selling, what are some of their pain points that they're going to you about? What are the common threads that are keeping them up at night? Well, one of the common threads for boomers is that most of them haven't saved enough. So they, in other words, they're the rest of their life is tied up in their business. Mm -hmm. So they get to this point where um, they may still be engaged in the business day to day. They may not be able to leave the business for very long. You know, maybe, maybe I go on a two week vacation, but I'm still answering emails and calls and so on and so forth. And, and so that step one is for this business to be worth anything to any, anything to anyone else or anything substantial to anyone else, you've got to extricate yourself from the day-to-day -day, uh, running of the business. And that's uh, not, that's is somewhat about the numbers, but it's also very much about your need to control and um, being willing to step away and let other people fail, which because they will, and that's okay. If you, if you let them fail small and, you know, then you can come back in and, and work on things. Um, I think that in terms of, that's, so that's the first reality for most boomers. They don't do not have enough. They might have a tenth of the net worth outside. They might have fifty percent of their net worth outside, but more likely than not, they're going to have somewhere between zero to twenty percent of their net worth outside their business. So everything's riding on that business, which makes it very diff, very challenging to be objective. <laughs> and uh, so I think that's another reason to have someone outside maybe help you with it. And the other thing. I think boomers tend to do is they're going to think about that later. They're going to think about that later. I'm not ready now. They can be 70 and not ready now. I've seen that over and over again. But the truth is that it takes a while to really do justice to a business, to get it ready for sale, to get it ready to marketplace. So, you know, you, a five-year runway is not unrealistic. A three-year runway is doable, but five or 10 years is not unheard of. So if you're in your late fifties or sixties, now's the time. When I was 55, I'm 66 now for those people who are trying to figure out how much gray hair I have now it is. So I had decided that I was going to make myself uh, irrelevant to the running day-to-day -day of my business. And that was a huge leap because I, I was not irrelevant. I think I had taken one two week vacation where I didn't respond to email every day, but I still checked in. Uh, and so I set a, uh, I set up a system. <laughs> I call it take back your time. And I set five criteria and I worked on these five criteria until I reached 60 and at 60, I took eight weeks off and I didn't call and I didn't respond to email and I didn't 
I didn't check in with my office at all. And, um, and, but I, you know, I didn't do it like hairy nary. I just said, okay, I'm going to, I'm, I'm for five years. I said to people, I'm not going to be here every day forever. So we're going to have to, you can't rely on me for this. You can't rely on me for that. Don't rely on me for this. And I began to look very, every time we would have something come up, I would say, well, who's going to take this little piece over? And what I found when I got back was really valuable. What I found is that business development has suffered. Nothing else has suffered. Clients have been taken care of. They've gotten good work done. Uh, you know, everything went swimmingly, as you would say, if you were English. But business development was, I left during our business, business, largest business development period, and we got Zippo new clients a year. So uh, I realized that I needed to do some work around how to develop a business development component that didn't include me. And so I've been working on that. And I'm really now somewhat involved in business development, but very peripherally. So again, it takes a few years to work on these little pieces systematically, but it's very doable. Well, it seems like, you know, you've lived, certainly lived a life of congruence. Uh, tell me a little bit more about the other initiatives that you have, like why settle your educational route? Um, how have you been able to intertwine um, your hobbies with what you like to do with business? That's a great question, Kevin. You know, most of my hobbies have to do with creating or innovating something or, or, or also living sustainably. I'm a big sustainability advocate. I'll talk about that at the end. But in terms of how I've um, integrated my values, I think when I began to really understand who I was and began to give myself permission to adding to my business in a way that was congruent with my own natural talents rather than you know, I'm really not naturally a talented CPA. I really don't like detail, but I did that work for years because I had to do that work. That was how I paid the bills and fed the family. But when I began to see that, no, that was other people's gifts and not my gifts and my gifts were elsewhere and began to expound on those, you know, life became better for them and it became better for me. Um, and what I really got clear about was that it wasn't about for me, it's not about, you know, let me put it this way. I love making money. I love helping other people make money. It's, it's super important to make a, a profit in business and a nice profit in business. But for me, at the end of the day, it's about changing people's lives. When I change a business owner's life, that changes their family life. That changes the life of their team. It changes the life of their community. I mean, I look at it as I throw one pebble in the pond, but in effect, there's a boulder that goes into the pond that creates a tsunami of change in that environment. And that is exciting. When, when people called and like I had a business owner recently call who'd monetize their business, we helped them sell it. And he said, I sat down with all my kids and I told him I was getting them, giving them $50,000. And he said, it was, they were so excited. And I'm like, he was so excited. And so I was so excited, you know, how it's just thrilling to see that people's lives are so, you know, so again, it's his life changed, his kids' lives are changing. And, um, and I'm sure his grandchildren will benefit as well as, as time goes on. Uh, so for me, it, congruence is always uh, something that, you know, one of my of the three freedoms of prosperity, let's go back to there, money freedom, time freedom, and freedom from worry. Money freedom, I have always been a saver. I, I'm not the typical boomer who didn't save any money. I saved my first dime and I probably still have it. And, and I've never lived at the top of my lifestyle, just not who I am. So money freedom came pretty easy to me. Time freedom, a lot less so. But I, again, I, I've very, been very strategic about it. But worry, freedom from worry, I believe it's impossible to achieve if you not, do not live by your values. So, you know, recently, I think this is a, a very clear example for me. And it's not something that I said, this is my bad. I, I was, I'm refinancing the building that the uh, company is housed in. Hmm. And I was doing so with the credit union, which I thought would be very much in alignment with my values. And we had some disconnect, like we did all the work and everything went well. And then they called, told me the loan was approved, which I was like, of course, I thought I knew we were in good shape. And six weeks went by before he called me to say we we're closing. And I, so I, 
I didn't ask him at the time why that happened, but we, I worked through the closing uh, statement with the closing agent. And on my way to the closing, I had a couple of questions and I called the business, uh, the loan officer I'd worked with. And I said, I have these questions. And I said, oh, by the way, what happened? What, what was the six weeks? You know, usually if your loan's approved, you like close. And he said, oh, he said, my girl Peggy retired. And I'm like, his girl Peggy retired. And he goes on to tell me about how his girl Peggy always took care of everything. And when she retired, everything just sort of fell apart. And I found myself like, I could hardly even focus where I was on the road. I pulled over <laughs> into a parking lot and I finished the conversation and I just sat there for a while. And I thought, can I walk in and close this loan with this person that calls his assistant, my girl, Peggy? I, I, I would never, I would never, it'd be, it'd be, I just, it was just like, no, I, I couldn't, this, I couldn't. So I called a friend of mine for some support uh, as an African-American man that worked for me for a few years. And I said, I need some help. I'm about to walk away from this very good loan I've negotiated. And he said, Oh, Mackie, he said, every time you make that payment, you'll think about it. And I said, you're right. And so I called the loan officer and I said, I'm not coming to close this loan today. And she said, are you not coming today or you're not coming? And I said, I'm not coming ever. And I've been in the process of renegotiating the loan and I'm going to pay about a half a percent because interest rates have gone up and I'm happy to pay the half a percent. And I wrote to the company and I said, I'm not closing this loan because of this event. And I don't know if that'll change anything, but I know if I hadn't done anything, it wouldn't have changed anything. If I had walked in there and just closed alone and said, that's who he is, nothing, nothing would have ever changed. And I, you know, as a woman who has been the only woman in the room more times than I can care to say, spoken over more times than I can care to have been spoken over, I just couldn't do that to my fellow women, to my fellow woman, Peggy, who I don't even know. So that to me is a, a moment when inside of you, there's this calling of like, this is icky. And mm. that's the moment we all need to walk away from. Mm. Right. When something doesn't smell right, you know, and, and clearly you're, you're living out your values. And I love how you position that as you can only be free of worry if you live through your values. Like I think that's that's so important. You know, a lot of this conversation today, Mackie, has been around, you know, um, the effect that personal matters have on on business life and, and mm -hmm. the business itself. And so, you know, what a what a great way to to kind of wrap up this conversation. And uh, I just want you to bring this home today, Mackie McNeil. What is your definition of a real leader? Hmm. Well, my definition of a real leader is someone that's very much in tune with their values and their intention and who lives from the point of intention. Intention and goals are meant to come together. We are a goal-oriented society, but I think goals without intention are a... Um, it's a recipe for some kind of success, but not the kind of success that feeds our soul. It might be that you, it's just gonna be an empty success. You know, so I can put a SMART goal together and I can achieve it. But if I don't know why I'm achieving it, if I'm not clear about my purpose and I'm not clear about what I'm doing, then all I've done is check off another box. And at the end of the day, at the end of the evening, do I feel good about that? or do I then need another box to check off? I think you're probably just gonna need another box to check off. But those of us who live from intention, those real leaders who know their purpose and live their purpose, I believe at the end of that day, at the end of those days, they know they achieved, they did something of value to the world. And there isn't any amount of money or any checking off the box that's better than that. From Mackie McNeil, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, set goals that feed your soul, and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Mackie. Thank you, Kevin.
And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. And before we go today, I just want to make sure that you are all aware that we have now launched our new Real Leaders membership. If you want to get access to all of Real Leaders Magazine, private member-only events, and free courses online, hit the link in the show notes and enter in coupon code PODCAST20 to receive 20% off a 100 dollar a year subscription hit the link in the show notes enter in coupon code podcast 20 to receive access to all of real leaders to get you to the next level thanks for listening to this episode and always keep it real